Well, good morning, Sayreville Church. It is an honor to be preaching from the same pulpit of the man that I have been falling asleep to since I was a child. That uh, joke gets harder the third time you have to do it in a row. <laughs> For those of you who don't know me, my name is John Nemers. I am the son of youngest son of the lead guy around here, and so it's probably the youngest son's responsibility to keep him humble, so I'm just trying to do my job as best as I can. <laughs> However, I don't think any of us have been falling asleep this summer because we have been dealing with some pretty heavy topics and some controversial issues. And the topic that I'm dealing with today is lighter than the ones in the weeks past, but in order to set up my issue, I need to do a little bit of review of what we've been talking about these past couple weeks. So if you'll remember with me, we have been dealing with issues that our culture has uh, gone through, such as depression, racism, abortion, the hard question of how God could allow evil, and then, of course, in the past two weeks, we've been looking at homosexuality in the LGBTQ community. And in the process of this series on issues and inspiration, it is clear that our culture is full of issues. And if we're being honest with ourselves, I would bet that many of us have backed away from being vocal about our beliefs out of fear of the culture's views on topics like these. I know that I have. I have a close friend that I, he's an unsaved guy, non-Christian, and I hang out with him once a week. And anytime that a Christian conversation or a religious topic gets brought up, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells around this guy. And I'm sure I'm not the only one in here that feels that way. The Barna Group came out with a study recently where 44% of the Christians they talked to admitted that they would avoid spiritual conversations if they knew their non-Christian friends would reject them. That editor went on to say that Christians in America today have to live in the tension between Jesus, on one hand, commanding us to tell others the good news, and on the other hand, growing cultural taboos against proselytizing or evangelizing. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen the movie Silence, but it's a good movie. It's a true story, actually, about a Catholic monk who goes to Japan in a time where Christianity was under severe persecution, and he goes there in order to find his mentor who had allegedly denounced Christianity. And when he gets there, eventually he gets captured, and, and after years of being tortured brutally and seeing dozens of his own Christian friends killed in front of him, this Christian monk denounces his faith, denounces Christianity. And he'd go on to work for the Japanese government, looking for Christian contraband that's coming in to the country. But the last scene of the movie is after this monk had died. And his body was being taken away to be cremated. And his wife, without anybody else seeing, slipped in a tiny wooden cross into his hands as his body was being taken away. And it was almost as if to say, at the end of the day, even though he wasn't vocal about it, he was still a Christian. Many of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, are a lot like this monk we're not facing death, but the pressure to mold to our culture's worldview has put a zipper on many of our mouths when it comes to being a witness to those around us. Honestly, I think we're just scared. We're scared of how we'll be viewed. We're scared of offending somebody, offending our friends, offending our neighbors. We're scared of the consequences. So this is the question or the issue that I want to present to you guys this morning, and the question is this. 
How can we be in a wit- how can we be a witness in a culture that doesn't want to listen? How can we be a witness in a culture that does not want to listen? Because I've noticed something else in especially American Christianity. We have this ambitious desire to not just see one person, but the entire culture shift, change, and follow Christ. And it's not a bad desire. It's a good desire. We should have that desire. It's a big job, don't get me wrong, but it is a good desire. In fact, we've seen it happen in Scripture before. Uh, if you remember in Acts 19, when Paul was in Ephesus, this, this idol maker came up complaining about how his job was going under because too many people were becoming Christians. It's a remarkable story if you've never read it before. So many people were becoming Christians in Ephesus that it was affecting the economy. So it can happen. It's definitely a possibility, but more often than not, especially in Paul's ministry, it seemed to be focused not so much on the masses, but on the individuals, reasoning with them back and forth, face to face. So here's my proposition to our question. The question being, how can we be a witness in a culture that doesn't want to listen? My proposition is the way we reach the culture is by reaching the individual. The way we reach the culture is by reaching the individual. And I believe that Paul gives us one of the best examples for how we can do this in Acts 17, where he arrives in Athens all by himself without any of his buddies, and he sees a bunch of uh, Athenian philosophers, and he starts to witness to them, reason with them back and forth. So you have a Bible, open it up to Acts 17. We're going to be in uh, verse 16 to start off, and we're going to be looking at four characteristics that Paul puts on display that we need to incorporate in order to reach individuals with the gospel. And we're going to be reading out of the CSB translation, so it'll be on the screen behind me. Otherwise, look in your own Bible, and starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. We'll stop there for now. The first thing that we see in this passage in order to reach individuals, we must have a heart for the lost. And we see that. Paul points that out to us. It says that he was deeply distressed or, or his spirit was provoked or he was in deep anguish when he saw the sinful idolatry in the city of Athens. In fact, it was a common saying about that city that it's easier to find a God than a man in that city. Apparently, the worship of anything other than God was so prevalent in Athens that you couldn't get away from it even if you tried. That sounds a lot more like America than it does Athens to me, but that's not necessarily the point. You see, Paul was not just simply distressed with their sin. He was clearly distressed about these individual souls, their eternal state and where they would end up. And this is an important lesson for Christians Because we have to have both convictions. Absolutely, yes, we need to be distressed over the culture's sins. But we also must be distressed over the culture's souls. In fact, we need to let one conviction bleed into the other. We must be distressed about an individual's soul because we know the result of their sin, which is eternal separation from God. We need to be in anguish over the eternal future of a lost soul. So ask yourself that question. Are you in anguish? Have you ever been in anguish over someone's soul that you know does not know Christ? 
I think Kurt Cameron may have asked it best when he asked, if you had the cure for cancer, wouldn't you share it? Well, you as a Christian have the cure for death, so get out there and share it. Why aren't we sharing it? Do you have a distress for lost souls? Because when you do, when you are deeply distressed about someone else's soul, you're going to do everything you can to help that individual understand the horrifying state they're in, not because you hate them, but because you love them, you care about them, you care what's going to happen to them after they die. And this definitely hit home for me because just this past Sunday, one of my high school friends, one of my good friends passed away. And I'll be going to her funeral tomorrow. Unfortunately, this seems to be a little bit of an epidemic that's happening with the people that I grew up with. But thinking about this, it reminded me of something that we all know, and that is everyone dies. You will die someday. Your neighbors will die. Your friends will die. Your family will die. It is a fact of life. But if that fact doesn't give us as Christians some sense of urgency to share the gospel with lost souls, then we simply do not understand how to love people. We need to have a heart for the lost. And because the gospel message can be such a hard message, such a hard truth, the individuals you are sharing with are not going to listen to you unless they know that you love them. And we've been talking about this this past couple weeks, haven't we? And that simply comes, the way that somebody knows that you love them, that simply comes with time. And Paul points that out to us as well. Look at verse 17. Paul says, or it says, he reasoned in the synagogue as well as in the marketplace, watch this, every day. It wasn't just a one-time thing that Paul was doing. He was there every single day. He didn't just grab his megaphone, get on the street corner, start telling people they're going to hell, and then bounce out of town the next day. He was there every single day, undoubtedly, talking to some of the same people. My mentor and friend, Chuck DeClean, once told me that when it comes to evangelism, I need to, quote, learn to love spending time with people. Ask yourself that question. Do you love spending time with people? It takes time to build trust. And when trust is built, the hard truth of the gospel can be shared and received as a message of love. We need to have a heart for the lost. Secondly, in order to reach individuals, we must have an eye for their worldview. Jump down to verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, you, while you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in shrines made by hands. Three times, if you're going to read through this whole text, you'll see that Luke is using, using visual words to describe what Paul is doing. Take a look at them with me, starting in verse 16. Paul says, He saw that the city was full of idols. Verse 22, I see that you are extremely religious. Verse 23, I observe your objects of worship. Honestly, one of the most 
common fears of a Christian is being stumped by someone, isn't it? And you're not alone. I remember I was giving a talk on the existence of God at a juvenile detention center, and right in the front row was this 14-year-old little girl who visibly looked as if she was hating every word that was coming out of my mouth. And so I'm not even five, maybe 10 minutes into my talk, and she raises her hand, and I knew immediately this little girl is going to try and stump me. And this fear came over me thinking, I know I'm about to get stumped by this little 14-year-old girl. She hasn't studied any of this. I have, but I know she's going to ask a question that I'm going to get stumped by. And so I did what every good teacher would do at that moment, and I ignored her. (laughs) Of course, that's not the right thing, but the point is, if that's you, let me point out and, ease, and, put, and give you some ease by pointing out that it doesn't take much talking to observe. It doesn't take much talking to observe. In fact, one of the best ways to win an individual is to listen, to ask good questions, and to take mental notes. The first time, when I first started spending time with my mentor, Chuck, I noticed that when he would first meet with people, all he would do is he would ask a question and then he would listen for an hour. And it was really an epiphany to me. I'm sitting there thinking, hey, I, I think I can do that. I can ask a question. I can listen to people. I can take mental notes as they talk. Honestly, guys, it's been single-handedly one of the most helpful skills that I've picked up. In fact, just the other day, I ran into one of my buddies at the gym and I asked him about his life. And all I did was I listened to him while taking mental notes of what he was saying. And he started talking about how he needed to focus on himself rather than other people. So I noted that he was trying to find meaning in life. He's trying to find meaning in himself, but he was trying to find meaning in life. And so a couple weeks later, I took him out to coffee. And with those notes in mind, I tried to make a compelling case for how he was only going to find meaning, not in himself, but rather in God. We need to make a compelling case case for God, a compelling case for Christianity, which leads me to point out hopefully the obvious that we can't be quiet forever. Listening is good, but we have to be ready. We have to be ready to use those mental notes that we've been taking and make a good case for Christianity. And this is exactly what Paul was doing. He knew that he was talking to a bunch of materialistic philosophers, so he made an argument for God that would be convincing to those specific people. Notice in verse 24, he doesn't start with Jesus as the Messiah, as he usually does when he's trying to witness to Jews. He starts with God as the creator. And he does that in order to make a more compelling case for those people he was trying to reach. Isn't that interesting? Paul had an eye for his worldview. We ought to have the same thing. We should listen, ask good questions, take mental notes, and present your case according to where the individual is at. Thirdly, in order to reach individuals, we must have a mouth to speak the gospel boldly. I don't know about you, but I I really do enjoy a good compelling argument, a good compelling debate. I just had my anniversary this past Friday, and I have learned after five years of marriage that my wife does not enjoy two-hour-long debates on such things like the ontological argument, especially with a bunch of kids crying in the back seat and a long car ride, but that's besides the point. <laughs> Having a good, compelling argument is important. 
We've seen that in this text. But that argument is absolutely useless without the gospel. A compelling argument that doesn't end in the gospel being presented is a lot like a quarterback getting loose, running 99 yards down the sideline just to fumble the ball at the one-yard line. You didn't give the people what they needed. They need the gospel in order to be saved. People don't get saved from convincing arguments. People get saved from the gospel. We have to present the gospel to lost souls. Don't shy away from it. And that's exactly what Paul did. If you look at verse 30, after making his argument for a creator, a compelling argument at that, he lays out the gospel. Verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has, pro- he has provided proof of this to everyone by rising him from the dead. Give them the gospel. Honestly, sometimes you don't even need a compelling argument because the individual is already ready to hear the gospel. One of my friends who just got saved a couple weeks ago pointed this out to me. He'd been a Buddhist for the past three years, and so in my mind, I'm thinking, i got to convince him of a God and then a personal theistic God, and then we can move towards how morality points to Christianity and then, and then the reliability of Scripture. And this went on for a couple of weeks until finally he just stopped me. He said, John, look, I basically already believe everything you're trying to convince me of. I just want to hear what this Christian God has, to, has done for me. Could you just like point out to me in the Bible where it talks about this? And so it's very clear to me that sometimes they just need the gospel. So here's a question. Can you explain the gospel to someone in a way that they will understand? Can you explain the gospel to someone in a way they will understand? And this is what I mean. Many of us, when we explain the gospel, we're just simply all over the place. Right? I mean, we'll start with the cross, then we'll jump over to Jesus' deity, and then repentance, and then sin, and the resurrection, and it's all true, it's all the gospel, but it's all over the place. We ought to have what I like to call gospel structure. It's like telling someone directions to your house. If you start giving someone directions out of order, they're never going to get there. <laughs> we need to understand how to explain the gospel to people in a way they will be able to follow to salvation. Does that make sense? So let me give you an example of what I do when I'm trying to explain the gospel to somebody, I always start with how the individual can know in this life that when they die, they can get to heaven. I then move on to explaining that in order to know, you must first see yourself as drowning in your sin and in desperate need for help and salvation. I then explain how Jesus was that help when he died and rose again, bearing all of your sin, absorbing the wrath of God, and then not just that, but offering you his perfection, offering you his righteousness as a perfect and free gift. But then I explain how just like every gift, it needs to be received. And the way you receive it is through trusting, through believing, through faith in what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, that what he did on the cross and his resurrection truly did take on all of your sin and offer you his perfection. That's what I do. But we all need to work on good gospel structure if we want to win individuals. Lastly, in order to reach individuals, we must have moving feet. 
Look at verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, eh, we'd like to hear more from you about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Now, at this moment, Paul may have been a little tempted to be disappointed, right? I mean, come on, this is Pentecost. I mean, his good buddy Peter had been preaching messages, and thousands of people are getting saved. Paul just lays the hammer down on these people in Athens, and what happens? Well, some of them mocked him. Some of them thought, ah, that's interesting. And only a few believed. But this, too, is an extremely important lesson because it reminds us that we cannot save anyone. We are completely dependent on God to save. But as my dad pointed out to me earlier this week, you won't know until you go. You're not going to know if God is willing to save souls until you pick up your feet and go. And trust that God may do something great. Going over to your neighbors, you don't know. You don't know what God is willing to do. He may save them. He may save them. I think that's what Paul is trying to tell us in Romans 10, 14 and 15, when he says, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. One time I was going out calling and knocking on doors on this super rainy day. It was miserable. And we went to probably 10 houses, and not a single person answered the door. And I'm just thinking in the back of my head, what am I doing here? I could be at home with my kids and my wife, and I'm out here right now. What am I doing? We got to the last house, and we prayed before we got up there. And we knocked on the door, and sure enough, Linda Gookin answers the door. And as God would have it, she would invite us in out of the rain, and she'd sit down and start a Bible study with us. And after a couple of weeks, she would come to place her trust in Christ and be saved And she's on her way to heaven right now. You don't know until you go. For most of us, this is an obedience issue. We know that God commands us to share the gospel. We just need to be obedient. And as, again, to quote my, my, uh, my guy Chuck here, my dad gets a little irritated when I quote Chuck more than I do him, but he'll get over it. Chuck said to me, I almost wish that there was no gift of evangelism so that everyone could experience the joy of being obedient to the call to evangelize. I love that quote. We need to have moving and obedient feet when it comes to sharing the gospel with people. So let's get practical. What things can we do to put into practice what we just heard? Well, first, do you have a heart for the lost? Ask yourself that question. And why don't you think about an individual right now that you know does not know Christ and they're on their way to hell and think of a way that you can invite them to coffee. Maybe invite them to uh, a sports game or play basketball, whatever it is, with the intention of spending time with them, loving on them, and sharing the gospel with them. Do you have a heart for the lost? Secondly, Do you have an eye for the individual's worldview? With that person in mind, who's in your mind's eye, when you meet up with this individual, 
why don't you work on your listening? Instead of just talking the whole time or trying to tell them the truth, even if it is the truth, listen. Listen to them and work on your observation skills and think about what approach you might be able to take when it comes to making the case for Christianity. Take mental notes as they talk. Have an eye for their worldview. Thirdly, do you have a mouth to speak boldly? How is your gospel structure? When people meet with you and they, you hear them, they hear you explain the gospel to them, do they leave a little bit more confused than when they started? Why don't you work on your gospel structure this week? Maybe on your way to work, turn off the radio, or maybe when the kids are down for a nap, or whenever you have an opportunity, work on your gospel structure. Make sure it's clear that when you're explaining the gospel to somebody, somebody can truly get saved, and they're not going to leave confused. We want to help you with that. If you have questions, we have resources for you, so come up and ask us. Fourthly, and lastly, are your feet moving? Are you being obedient to the call to evangelize? Well, this week, why don't you pray for opportunities? And don't just pray. Pray for open doors. That's what we need to be doing. But take them. When you see them, take them and seek them out. We've uh, heard this said from this pulpit many times. There is no prayer request answered more quickly than when you ask for an opportunity to share the gospel. And that is extremely true. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, "Uh, look, I don't have a heart for the lost because... I am lost. And frankly, when you're talking about death, you may have been thinking, man, if I were to die today, I'm not quite sure what would happen. Well, if that is you, then let me assure you, just as Paul said, Jesus has indeed died for your sins and risen from the grave, and he is offering you that free gift of salvation we talked about. And the Bible tells us that if that's something you want, today is the day of salvation Don't wait another day. You're not guaranteed another day. Today is the day of salvation. But some of you may be thinking, I don't really know about this whole gospel thing. I'm not quite sure about God in general. I have a lot of questions. That's okay. We want to answer those questions. If you have them, talk to us. Come talk to us. Text us. Email us. We want to answer those questions. But you need to ask. We need to have, as Christians... A heart for the lost, an eye for the worldview, a mouth to speak the gospel, and obedient and moving feet. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are a merciful God who saves men and women, sinful men and women. If there's one thing that we could take away from this morning, Father, I pray that you would give Salaville Church a burden for lost souls. I pray that Sayville Church would be a church that spreads your gospel all over the world. Lord, specifically this week, I pray that you would open doors for us and that we would apply the things that we have just heard. Lord, we love you. In your son's name, amen.